I have an unpopular opinion, which is that this stuff about interest rates and the downturn and what have you are overplayed. I think that the prognostications of the end of the world are exaggerated. And I think that over the course of the next six to 12 months, this fear, uncertainty and doubt is going to rotate over to healthy enthusiasm and back to FOMO. When I started at Google in 2006, it felt like jumping 10 years into the future, which is why the Startup Podcast is delighted to be partnered with Google Cloud. Your startup can live in the future too with Google's clean, AI-forward cloud platform. Their startup programs are the best in the business. Get up to $200,000 worth of credits alongside support and training from startup experts. Go to google slash TSP, that's G-O-O dot G-L-E slash TSP for the startup podcast to learn more and access all the best offers. You're listening to the Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yanev. And today we have another awesome listener Q&A episode. We've collected your questions and picked out the best, and Yanev and I are going to give them an answer on the fly and help Provide answers to the people asking the questions and provide some case studies for everybody listening in. But just before we get started with that, Chris, we wanted to let you all know that the Startup Podcast is hiring for a couple of part-time roles. We're looking for a growth manager and a content creator and copywriter who can turn our podcasts into written learning material. These are paid gigs. So if you love the Startup Podcast and think you could be a good fit, hit us up on LinkedIn. It's very exciting. We're growing, Yanev. We're also looking for someone who has some experience designing and managing a merch store because we've heard from some of you that you like some of our little nuggets of wisdom and it'd be fun to put it on a hat or a shirt. So reach out to us if you qualify for any of those roles. We'd love to hear from you. There's an email in the show notes. Now, before we dive too deeply into the episode, people will probably notice in the last couple episodes, I've had a little bit of a gravelly throat. I've had a flu that strained my voice box. So apologies about that. And thanks for bearing with me. We want to make sure we don't miss a week for you guys. First question, Chris, and this one comes from Alan in Sydney. How do you break into startups when you only have corporate experience? Ah, the evil corporate experience. It's a good question, Alan. So I think what you want to be showing, Alan, is the skills that you've acquired and also the attributes that you have that make you a good fit for startups. So startups, especially at the early stage, are looking for talented, passionate, intelligent generalists who can get things done. And the concern when you're looking at someone who's coming from corporate, I can say this as a founder, is have they become over-specialized? Have they become just a cog in the machine? Do they like initiative? Are they able to get things done effectively in an unstructured, fairly chaotic, very fast-changing environment that is a startup? So what you want to do is demonstrate that you have that. And there are a few things to do here. One is to package up your corporate experience in a way that is appealing. You know, what are the things that you learned in corporate that can actually be a value add or a level up for the startup? So that's one thing. The next thing is to show a level of self-awareness that startups are different from corporate. Some of the best hires I've made come from a corporate background, but these are the people who had this itch in corporate that they just couldn't scratch, that they had all of these skills, they had all of this success, but they really want to be unleashed and unshackled. In a sense, that's my story as well, right? And those people can be fantastic hires. So if you're trying to present yourself, Alan, 
talk about what it is in corporate that you like and what it is that you are missing, right? This isn't about going into a complaining session and talking about how shit it is. This is about showing that self-awareness of the aspects of corporate that are limiting you and your genuine desire and passion to work in an environment where you can show your skills and talent to the full potential. The third thing I would say is work on building a bit of a personal brand because building a personal brand, apart from anything else, demonstrates a level of hustle and entrepreneurialism and willingness to put yourself out there, right? So it's the type of portfolio that you're saying, look, I have, God forbid, started a podcast <laughs> or whatever, right? But like, I've made a name for myself and I've raised my profile by doing certain things, by showcasing my expertise and my skills out in the world. And I've had some success and some traction. So those are the three things I'd say would really make you stand out from the pack. It's a lot less about your resume, your CV, and more about showing that you are someone who can work effectively and has that real passion for working at a startup. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Yanev. And as you're talking about the resume, you're talking about interviewing. I think it's partly about using the right vocabulary. You talked about specialist versus generalist, Yanev. A lot of corporate titles are extremely specific and extremely corporate. Maybe generalize or help to map for the founder how your titles map to Silicon Valley style high growth startups, right? Instead of business analyst, product manager, right? Instead of department, program, whatever, whatever, you're the owner of a certain outcome. And as you said, Yanev, you want to talk about the differences between startups and large companies. In order to keep away from this kind of complaining session, you want to just talk about the pros and cons of each, right? The pros of a large enterprise are you get to make a big impact on large numbers of people. You get to affect an established brand. Those are good things. So it's not about large companies are bad and startups are good. It's about you're wanting a different kind of experience from your career. At Uber, when we were young and scrappy and I was hiring people from Google and Facebook and what have you, I was listening out for some key things. And I said like, hey, why do you want to leave Google and join Uber? I wanted to hear them say, I want more ownership. I want more speed. I want to make more impact on the outcomes of the business. I want to be an owner, not a renter. I want to participate in the upside. So I was listening for people who had a level of discomfort with the status quo, or discomfort with the bureaucracy of a large organization, and were looking to get scrappier, faster, more innovative, more agile. And so that's what you need to communicate both subtly and unsubtly in the answers you might be giving and in the applications you might be making. Yeah, absolutely. I think an important part of that is a willingness to get your hands dirty. In corporate, you can have a role that is kind of, you have people to do stuff for you, right? And this doesn't even need to be a management role. You could be someone who's coordinating different functions. You're a project manager and then other people do the pieces of work that you assign to them and so on. There's a bit of a running joke, you know, of young people wanting to break into startups to get into a strategy role. They're like, I want to do startup strategy. And startup people are like, what the fuck is that? And what do you think gives you the right to come into a startup and sit in your ivory tower and pontificate on strategy? The way you get involved in strategy at startups is by executing. I think this sort of corporate distinction between strategy and operations is completely irrelevant in startups. And so one way you want to get your hands dirty early on, job titles are not important. Exactly what you do is not that important. Of course, if you're a software engineer, that's something else, but I assume from the question, Alan, you're talking about someone with a sort of more general business type of background, a non-technical background. You want to come in and show what you're capable of in whatever role is currently needed, right? So it's less about, you know, this is my job title. This is the type of role I expect. 
there will be time in that startup to evolve and really show what you're capable of and where your strengths are. But if you're too particular and try to map that corporate job ladder onto a startup, you're going to be ruling yourself out of a lot of things. And while I speak, I realize yet another thing, which is the old question of money. There is one way you can break into startups when you only have corporate experience, and that is generally to show a willingness to take a reduction in salary. That will be nearly certainly necessary. And if you lean into that, then that actually showcases a strong desire. It's a positive signal. Now, with anything like this, you can always say, well, that is a privileged position. You need to have the financial resources to be willing to accept a pay cut. That is true. And if you are in a well-paid corporate job and you're not able to reduce your expense base, then probably, unfortunately, now's not the right time in your life to break into startups. So work towards putting yourself into a position where you can accept a pay reduction. Speaking of this idea of managing people versus being in the trenches, I had a trick question that I used to ask, which was, you know, I'd walk them through a scenario. What do we want to get done? How do you think through that? How might you do that? And then I'd ask, how many people would it take to get that done? What team do you need to be successful in that? And if the answer from this candidate who was clearly used to working at bigger companies was like, oh, you know, I need to hire this person, that person, this person, and then I'd manage them to do X, Y, Z. I'd be like, fail. That was a trick question, right? It's like the answer needs to be, I'm going to be the one to get it done. I'm going to dive in and figure it out. And once I figure it out and once the company's ready to scale, then I can be in a position to help build that team and build that culture. But day one, it's going to be me on the line, on the tools, getting it done. Yeah. And I just actually wanted to shout out to our new head of marketing at Circular, Natalie Gardner. Nat, if you're listening, she joined us about six weeks ago from a corporate gig where she had a team of 20 people reporting to her. And she has just come in and is just doing everything herself completely hands-on. And, you know, I think that's your best case scenario. If you can showcase that all the learning, all the knowledge, all the sophistication you've gained at a big company, but then you are willing to come in and be scrappy, that can be a match made in heaven. So first of all, look inside yourself. Are you willing and able to do that? And then if you are, really be very clear with people who you're looking to join, with startups you're looking to join, that this is who you are and this is what you're capable of. Awesome. Next question. Okay. We have a question from Onur in Turkey. I hope I'm saying that correctly. As a startup lawyer, I'm curious to know your view on legal support for startups. What is your take on when startups need legal support and what should the characteristics of an optimal legal support for startups be? Uh, isn't legal zoom enough for startups? Mm -hmm. Do you really need to pay a lawyer? This is not legal advice. This brings to mind, I know in Silicon Valley, one of the first things I discovered when I landed there was that significant firms, legal firms and accounting firms would actually provide donated services for equity. They would give you some budget of services, let's call it 50K or 100K of services for let's call it, you know, 0 0.5, 1, 2% of equity. And you would basically pitch them what you're trying to build, like an investor. And they would say, yeah, we'll take you on as one of our little startup bets. There was something particularly interesting and useful in Silicon Valley that was unheard of for me coming out of Australia. So that's something to keep in mind when you do decide to pick up those kind of professional services. There are many different kinds of lawyers, right? Lawyers are a fairly specialized profession. So when the question is, okay, legal support for startups, my question is immediately, what type of legal support? And of course, it depends on the sort of business you're in, but you will probably want some amount of support when you're raising capital, for example, from a finance lawyer who can help you make sure that your constitution and your shareholders agreement and all that are correctly drawn up. 
Then there are other sorts of lawyers, you know, contract lawyers. If you're doing big B2B transactions, if you're on the enterprise space, you will probably want legal support. And then what you'd call a product counsel who are evaluating the legality of the work that you are doing. Now, that last one is one I've got feelings about because I think while it can be done well, it's often not done well. And this comes back to one of my favorite topics that I always like to come back to, Chris, which is correct perception and evaluation of risk. And I know you as an early Uber person would have a very deep and strong opinion on this. I think where you can go wrong in a startup is to say, we have this idea, let's get a lawyer to look it over. And you know what the lawyer's job is to do? Is to say, these are all the different ways in which it could go wrong. <laughs> these are all the ways in which you could get sued and whatnot. This is all the ways in which we may get into some sort of trouble. And if you take that advice on face value, then you're going to end up just not doing the thing that is actually most likely to make you succeed. Now, as an early stage startup, the risk of being sued, and by the way, this is not legal advice, we should make it very clear, is probably not one of your bigger risks. So while you shouldn't do really cavalier things, and you should certainly always act morally and ethically, Changing your product or changing your strategy because of legal risks presented to you by your counsel can be a very dangerous approach. So the best product counsels make that very clear. They say, okay, here are the different risks, but they're small or whatever. But I think a lot of lawyers are trained to just say, you should play it safe. And that can be really harmful. So zooming out, I think one of my thoughts on legal support for startups is that as with some types of marketing, this is the sort of thing that you probably want to wait pretty late to bring in-house because it's quite specialized and because your needs will fluctuate, right? So I think the retained model makes sense. You might want a lawyer on retainer when you're raising capital. You might want a lawyer on retainer for specific legal issues that are unique to your business. You might want a lawyer on retainer to review complex contracts if you need those. But again, make sure that, again, one of the alternative words for lawyer is counsel. They are there to give you advice. They are not there to tell you what to do. So take their counsel. It is extremely valuable, but it is just that. It is counsel. You cannot abdicate responsibility for important decisions to your legal support. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the time, lawyers are the place ideas go to die, right? Their job is to find risk and to mitigate risk. And of course, the number one way to mitigate risk is to sit at home and do nothing. And so they will help you talk yourself into doing nothing pretty quickly. I remember when I first met with the Uber council, they said to me very explicitly, lawyers are usually stumbling blocks and that's not how we act here. Our job is to help you find an ethical, legal way to get your product built and basically find a way to yes. And that was incredibly refreshing, even though I'd actually never really dealt with senior big co-lawyers before. I was like, oh, I could see how that would be a massive stumbling block if they didn't have that cultural attitude. I've seen such terrible examples of what you're saying, Yanev, around products being almost invalidated by lawyers or shaped by lawyers. I actually have worked in the past with a startup that was building a financial product, helping people optimize their financial situation. And Australian regulation requires that you provide a statement of advice and package your advice in a very, very specific way. And they even, I think, are so prescriptive as they tell you what sections in what order and what have you. And the entire product that the company had built was now oriented around the statement of advice. The product had become the statement of advice. And upon joining, I was saying, well, what can we do to help people short of crossing the line into the regulatory trigger that forces us to create a multi-page document of advice and how might we bury the statement of advice further down the pipeline and more as an exhibit rather than the product itself? How do we make this more of an interactive dashboard? 
And so the lawyers and the regulation had so thoroughly injected itself into the process so as to have moved it from a digital interactive product into a document generation tool. You really got to watch out for the regulation and the law shaping the product versus the other way around. And as you speak, there's one other type of legal specialist where you want to be careful, which is around HR and employment law. So once again, I think it's really important at a startup to have a tight, high-performing team. And what you see often from lawyers and HR professionals who often have a legal background is when you want to, for example, let someone go or take any sort of HR action that they say, there is legal risk around here. You may be sued for unfair dismissal. So you need to instead go through this onerous process that's painful for you, that's painful for the person, rather than doing the right thing by the startup and by the person and having a clean exit. And so once again, I think it's really important to balance the potential legal risk here, which often is overstated in my experience, and the risk to the business from not being able to take clean, clear decisions in the best interests of the business. Man, I, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. I've also seen a lot of people making a lot of decisions about their team based on Australian employment risk. And I'm like, dude, that guy is not who you need. Get rid of them. Find a way and do it now. Right. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And we'll summarize all of this with we are not lawyers. So go talk to a lawyer. We are definitely not lawyers. This is not legal advice. Chris, is this legal advice? This is not legal advice, Yanev. Okay, once more, for the people at the back, this is not legal advice. We should probably have, have a whole episode about law and startups, actually. So that's an idea I'm going to add to the list here, Yonev. Now, just before we move to the next question, Onur, who asked this question, as mentioned, he's from Turkey. And he did ask us to just briefly mention that devastating earthquake that's hit Turkey and Syria. It's now killed more than 50,000 people. It's a huge humanitarian disaster. And the authorities there really need all the help they can get. So if you are willing to help, there are many charities that are doing great work on the ground and just a plea from a member of the startup community in Turkey to see what you can do to help. Absolutely. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Okay. So our next question from Leandro in Sydney. Hi, Leandro. What's the difference between business strategy and product strategy in startups? Do you have some examples? Yeah, I actually saw Leandro post this question on LinkedIn as well. And <laughs> my answer was they're very closely related, but they're not the same thing. So a business strategy typically comes first. What is the pain and suffering in the world that you want to address? What are the potential business models, go-to-market tactics, fundraising strategies, partnership models, and so on that you want to engage in? in order to build a business. And some of that might actually be on a longer time horizon, right? A year, five years, and even in some cases thinking further out, like where does this ultimately go over five to 10 years? And so a business strategy is incredibly important and it is a discrete thing you build. A product strategy is closely related to that, but it tends to be more tactical and obviously more centered around the product. So it should take the questions of what problem is the business solving in the world? What are the key metrics and priorities of the business? What are the key business models that we're aiming at? What are the key goals over the medium to long term? But then how do we make that more tactical and more actionable over the shorter term? So while the business strategy might think further out and might be higher level in terms of problems and concerns, the product strategy is about shorter timeframes and more tactical and practical considerations. What are the product pillars? What are the key personas? What are the key viral or multiplayer loops? What are the phases and milestones and roadmaps we want to go through? 
And so as you can see, they're very closely related and the product strategy is absolutely informed by and inherits a lot of the business strategy, but then it goes further into more tactical, pragmatic and actionable detail. I feel like this is the type of distinction that can sometimes descend into navel gazing. And so one version of my answer to the question is it doesn't really matter that much. Like just make sure you have a good strategy. But to the extent that I think there is a distinction is I feel, and this is a bit vague, but I feel that the business strategy is more closely related to financial metrics rather than customer or user metrics. And that of course, these two are strongly coupled, right? You can't hit financial metrics without having certain user metrics and you need to be hitting certain financial metrics for your product strategy to be viable. But there is a distinction. And you know, maybe I'll use an example from my startup Circular to illustrate it. We have a product that is fundamentally about providing a subscription service to consumer electronics that is affordable, that is flexible, that is sustainable and provides a better experience to customers than buying the equivalent product would. And so we have a whole lot of product strategy that goes into how we do that, how we craft the pricing, how we craft the go to market, how our website works, how we send the message out, how we package and upsell, all of these things, what inventory we stock, all of these I feel quite broadly fit into product strategy. But then because we're actually supplying these products, we have quite a complex cash flow cycle, right? So one of our things that allows us to really be an effective business is to bring on board debt providers to sign agreements that allow us to effectively borrow against our future revenue stream and so on. Now, those things are invisible to the consumer and in some sense, I feel, are external to the product, but they're actually a core part of our business strategy that allows what is in some sense an asset-heavy business to grow like a software startup. So I do think that these are different lenses. And the frustrating thing about different lenses is that they're never distinct, right? You're looking at the same object from slightly different angles, but that's sort of the way I would view that distinction. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that I hate this kind of navel gazing and semantic game that often gets played and it just adds more confusion. The reason though, I think that the distinction is important in many cases is you'll bump into founders who have this kind of 40,000 foot business strategy or business idea. And then they have a bunch of product managers and engineers, or even worse, just engineers running around to try to figure out how to map that into running code. Yeah. And what's missing is the product strategy. It's missing that connective tissue between the 40,000 foot business strategy or business intention and the very concrete, actionable and methodical product strategy. I actually like your construction around this kind of emphasis on finance versus users, but it's also about resolution mm. and it's about pragmatism and actionability. I think a business strategy should actually spawn a marketing strategy and a legal strategy and a go-to-market strategy and a product strategy. And so each department or each discipline has to figure out how to interpret that higher level notion, that higher level intention into actionable function-specific tactics. As a product guy, Yanev, I define product very broadly and I absolutely think of my product strategy as heavily impacting and driving business strategy as well. So I agree with you that these ultimately and eventually end up looking like multiple lenders on the same core thing, but it is important to think about them in discrete ways. Otherwise you run the risk of conflating and confusing everyone and no one having things to constrain their actions. And actually, maybe just to connect a few dots there, you mentioned the legal strategy. So to connect it back to our previous question and also to Uber, which I know is one of our go-to examples for obvious reasons, I feel that Uber had this regulatory arbitrage, somewhat 
legally antagonistic approach to market expansion, where they said, we will work in the gray areas of this regulation. We will challenge this legislation in order to launch in those markets. Now, I don't think that's product strategy. Even taking a fairly broad view of product strategy, it sits outside the product. It goes to how, as a business, we're going to grow and make money and stay solvent and manage that business risk. So I guess the business risk, to your point, Chris, is like, how do we combine all those things into a single coherent narrative that allows us, when we add all the layers of abstraction, to say, if a business is about maximizing EBITDA or future discounted free cash flow or whatever, how are we going to do that, right? So maybe that's to your yep. point of it being the sort of umbrella and the highest level view. Absolutely. I actually created a business planning and alignment pyramid where I was encouraging founders to think through their business from the bottom up with business strategy being kind of the bottom of that pyramid and then product strategy being a little bit higher because it's mm. informed mm. by the business strategy. Ultimately, though, Yanev, I think you're right. These are all facets of the same diamond. Absolutely. The Startup Podcast is brought to you by Google Cloud. We use Google Cloud at Circular, and I'm happy recommending it as the best cloud platform for your startup too. Go to goo.gle slash TSP for the Startup Podcast to learn more and access all the best offers. So our next question is from Jayan in Sydney. What's the most common misconception that a non-technical sole founder has in the early stages? For me, it comes down to something I've touched on on multiple occasions, which is this idea that a CTO is the solution to your product problems. Outside of Silicon Valley in markets in Europe and Australia and Southeast Asia, you will always meet non-technical or rather non-startup founders, founders with traditional business experience who are saying some version of, I need a CTO, I need a CTO, or my CTO is letting me down, or my CTO is crap. And what you find is that their CTO is perfectly competent at building code, hiring engineering teams, motivating engineers, but they don't know what to build in what order. And the product direction is being fed poorly from the non-technical founder. And so I think that's the big misconception. And related to that is conflating technology with product conflating ideas with product and traction. Recently, I had a founder say to me, can you help me figure out if my product is good enough to go raise money? And I had to remind them that in many cases for first-time founders, it's nothing to do with the quality of the idea or even the quality of the product, but rather the quality of the traction. So the question is not whether the product is any good, but rather do any users give a shit? Have they de-risked any part of the validation that users are learning about, adopting and retaining on something of value? All of this is related to the definition of product and traction. And so in my mind, mistakes that not just non-technical founders make, but non-startup founders, founders who don't have experience building startups make. Of course, Chris, you gave the product manager's version of the answer. So let me give the engineer's version of the answer with non-technical co-founders, which is non-technical co-founders don't understand how software is built and maintained, and that can lead to a lot of very bad decision-making. Building a software product is not like ordering food off a McDonald's menu. It's not even like working with an architect and a builder to build your house. And the reason for that is we talked in so many previous episodes about discovery, about pivoting, about adding features, about technical debt, all of this, right? Your software is a kind of a living, evolving organism. It exists as a body in motion and it's a constantly changing body in motion. And so if you don't understand how software is architected and built and operated and maintained, 
if you think you can go to the cheapest outsourcing agency with a list of features that you need built and expect a good outcome, then you are going to have a really bad time. And so I think it's important if you are going to be building a tech startup that uses the incredible leverage of software to achieve this enormous scale. You don't need to be an engineer, but you need to be a keen student of software, how it's built and how it works so that those people who are technical, whether it is your technical co-founder, your CTO or someone else or an outsourced organization, that you actually understand the tools that they're using to build this fundamental substrate of your business. Because if you don't, you're going to end up with something that looks right at a very superficial level and is completely wrong as soon as you scratch the surface. We've talked about this on a few occasions as well. The ideal here is that you find a technical co-founder mm -hmm. rather than outsource this to an agency. If you're building a tech product startup, then you need those muscles inside your company for many, many reasons, ideation, iteration, etc. But it's also because of what you just described, Janev, which is there is no end point. You're continuing to learn and iterate with that team. You want them to have their blood, sweat, and tears invested in this process. And then when you're raising money and then ultimately exiting, the thing you're raising money for is the team. The thing you're exiting is the team. So you need to build this team. You just can't half-ass that. So these are really, really incredibly important. And the last point I'd make is, you know, I use the word find a technical co-founder and I misspoke there. What you need to do is earn a technical co-founder. And what that means is you need to take the business as far as you can to earn the partnership of a technical co-founder because engineers are worth their weight in gold. So whether it's putting together a pitch deck or running some early MVPs with Webflow or Squarespace or raising capital or otherwise moving the business along so that it's a train that a technical co-founder can join and feel some degree of confidence with. Now, of course, if you have a college mate that can code and they're willing to jump on board from day zero, that's great, but you absolutely need to earn that relationship, vet it well. It's like a marriage and you need to have it in-house. Okay. I think we've got time for one more question. So let's go to Antonios in Melbourne, who asks, in light of higher interest rates, what startup practices would you reconsider in order to get to profit earlier? That's a chewy one. <laughs> Where do we start? That is a chewy one. <laughs> well, I have an unpopular opinion which is that this stuff about interest rates and the downturn and what have you are overplayed. I think that the prognostications of the end of the world are exaggerated. And I think that over the course of the next six to 12 months, this fear, uncertainty and doubt is going to rotate over to healthy enthusiasm and back to FOMO. And you can even see some of that happening already with AI startups and everybody jumping back on the bandwagon. So that's unpopular opinion number one. Unpopular opinion number two is the thing you do to build a great startup during the boom times are more closely related to building a great startup in the bad times than you would think. It requires efficient, effective execution. It requires building a great product, acquiring users well, retaining those users well. Because if even in a boom time, you're just burning capital, acquiring traffic. Well, if that traffic isn't retaining and your unit economics suck and you have no line of sight to, if not profitability, at least something that resembles a business, then you're going to struggle to raise money anyway. And so I think the ultimate answer here is the rules of the game tighten. The quality of your execution needs to be elevated, but it's still the same game which is build a great product, solve a real problem, figure out how to efficiently acquire users, figure out how to retain those users and better 
have those users spread the word and help you acquire yet more users. So fundamentally, I agree with you, Chris, and your opinion may be unpopular because it doesn't generate as many headlines to say, well, things are pretty much the same as they were. But I do think there are some differences, some positive and some less positive that have happened, right? And this is really more about reversion to mean. It's not that the times now are crazy. It's that that period of zero interest rates led to what was called sort of somewhat jokingly now zero interest rate phenomena. And there's an important reason for this, right? So without becoming too much of a finance wonk, which I'm a faker anyway, I don't have a finance background, but like interest rates are effectively the price of money, right? It's a price of having access to money to use that money for your purposes. And so, of course, a startup, we talk a lot here about that optimizing for profitability is not generally the right thing to do when you're building a startup. But that's because in the future, you believe that if you keep investing and growing this thing and creating an incredible product, it will be massively profitable. And so what interest rates do is basically say, okay, if what you're doing here is trying to optimize the discounted present value of future cash flows, that's the wonkish bits, basically saying all that money that you're going to make in the future, like what's it worth to me now? Basically, the lower the interest rates, the more it's worth to me now. Like if I make a hundred bucks in 20 years and interest rates are 1%, that's more valuable than if I make a hundred bucks in 20 years and interest rates are 5%. So what that means is it sort of shortens the runway, higher interest rates, shorten the runway to making a positive cash return on that investment. Now, interest rates are still very low by historical standards. So what happened when interest rates were zero or near zero is that you had this nearly infinite window horizon for providing a return. And that led to a lot of crazy exuberance. It led to a lot of businesses being funded that were never really going to make money because no one had any better ideas for what to do with that money in a zero interest rate environment. And it led to a lot of blitz scaling. Now, blitz scaling is this term that was invented by Reid Hoffman. And it sounds like an awesome term. So it's like, why wouldn't we want to blitz scale? But it actually has a specific meaning, which is spending money inefficiently in order to grow as fast as possible. And it was designed for an environment where there is effectively a land grab, where you need to grow faster than your competition in order to then get that sort of network effect, right? So if you're Facebook or if you're Uber, right, it makes sense to say, okay, we need to outgrow the competition, even if we're spending a lot of money in order to establish ourselves. And, you know, Uber beat Lyft because they blitz scaled more effectively, right? It's to capitalize on the concept that the first to network effects wins. Exactly, right? First to scale wins, right? There's this common misconception that you have first mover advantage or first to market wins. And that's not true in software. The first to scale wins, which is still true. The interest rates don't change that. But blitz scaling is a specific prescription. I think a lot of businesses during that zero interest rate period were blitz scaling when they shouldn't have been. First to scale wins, yes, especially in network effect businesses. But there are a lot of times where you want to grow quickly, but efficiency and discipline are important. So all of these concepts that you talked about, like using your money effectively, using the resources effectively, that got obscured by that giant gush of free money. And we're going back to a more normal period where it's saying, hey, that money that we've raised from investors is actually valuable. We may not be able to go back to the well unless we have something meaningful to show for it. And we have to show that we're good stewards of their money. I think that went away for a while and that has now come back. Coming back to the question, which I think is a slightly loaded question because it talks about to get to profit earlier. Getting to profit earlier is not necessarily the goal. I don't think that having non-zero interest rates mean that you need to get to profit earlier, or maybe it means that you need to get to profit in 10 years instead of 30 years. But you know, it's not something that needs to be on the immediate horizon. 
of course, being at cash flow break even, which is not quite the same as profit, puts you in a strong negotiating position. That was always true. It remains true when you're raising capital. You know, the best time to raise money is when you don't need to. So that's a great thing to have. But the more important thing to do is to show that when you are raising capital and then spending that capital, that you are making meaningful progress to de-risking your business and getting to scale. So I think, you know, the word here is about discipline. But discipline doesn't mean not taking risks. It doesn't mean not dreaming big. It doesn't mean trying to hit profitability as soon as possible. It means making as much as you can out of the relatively small amounts of money that you raise so that by the time you go to raise again, you have made a shit ton of progress. There was this period where companies could raise every six months and, you know, they'd 5x their valuation, even though they hadn't really achieved anything. Well, that's gone, but good riddance, really. That didn't really benefit anyone in the long term. For me, the key word during this period is efficient, Yeah, is efficient action over time. I just think that too many founders are confusing efficient with don't spend any money or let's maximize the time we're alive so that we don't die versus let's maximize the efficiency of our execution so that we can come out the other side having built and grown better than everybody else. Yeah. And that's a very important distinction. I've met a number of founders who raised a crap load of money before the downturn and are basically just sitting on a pile of cash. And they're like, well, we just don't know when we're going to be able to raise again. And so we just we want to maximize our runway. Our primary goal is to maximize our runway. Plug. I'm like, <laughs> good luck with that. You are burning capital every month on servers and on employees and opportunity cost as other people are out executing you. If your primary objective is to live in fear and maximize your runway, and that's it, you are doing a lot wrong. You want to have the right people around you to help you act with efficiency and effectiveness every day, every week, so that you can maximize the efficacy of that runway versus maximizing the length of the runway. All right, that was the last question. Thank you, everybody, for submitting those. They're awesome. We didn't get a chance to get to all the questions today. Thank you so much for those that sent them in. And please do keep sending them in. We'll have the link in the show notes below. And of course, as you can see, if you're listening, folks, you have questions. Chris has answers. So, Chris, if people have even more questions and they want to work with you a bit closer to get those valuable answers, what should they do? Yeah, that's right, Yanev. You know, we talked about efficient action over time. That's what I do in my day job. I help startups make those efficient actions and maximize the efficacy of their runway. So feel free to learn more about that over at chrissar.com slash advisory. I've recently updated that page with new info, so check it out. And if nothing else, give me a bit of feedback on what it says and how I might be helpful. Yanev, how can people find you on the interwebs? Okay, well, I like to hang out on LinkedIn. I try to be less boring and saccharine than everybody else on there. So please give me a connection. If you're from the startup podcast listener community, I'd be happy to be connected. And yeah, always happy to chat there. How about you, Chris? I'm on all the social media, really. Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. I'm just at Chris Saad. Each platform has a little bit of a different flavor to it. So follow me on all those and I'd love to have you along on the journey. Okay, now's the time to talk about the startup podcast pledge. If you listen to this podcast more than a couple of episodes, there's a pledge you are taking, which is that we would like you 
to follow us on LinkedIn, write a little recommendation post on your favorite social media channel shouting us out, and give us a rating or review on whatever listening app that you use. Yeah, that's hugely important, Yanev. It helps us grow and it helps us help more founders. That's the name of the game for the podcast, and we really appreciate it. I've been seeing quite a few amazing shout outs on LinkedIn recently, and they really make me smile and really motivate us to keep going. So thanks so much for all of you who have done that. Absolutely. Keep it coming. All right, Chris. Great as always. Thanks to the people who sent in the questions, and we will be back next week with another episode. Catch you in the next one. See you later, guys. The Startup Podcast is proud to be partnered with Google Cloud. These folks have really pulled out all the stops to help startups. Up to 200K in compute credit over two years, technical training, and business support provided by startup experts. We use Google Cloud at Circular, and it's a delight. I'm happy to recommend it to anybody building a startup. It fits with our values too. Google Cloud is 100% powered by renewable energy. Go to google slash TSP, that's G-O-O slash TSP for the startup podcast to learn more and access all the best offers.